Welcome to the Ardent Archives, a ministry of North Clay Baptist Church. Here we explore the writings of church history in order to edify and equip the saints in their ongoing discipleship. In this series, we are reading and discussing Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machen. Written at the beginning of the 20th century, Machen's classic work remains as relevant today as it was when it was written. Machen sought to expose liberalism's foundation as contrary to that of orthodox, biblical Christianity. In his own words, Machen saw the issue in the church of the present day as being not between two varieties of the same religion, but at bottom, between two essentially different types of thought and life. So prepare yourself as we dive into the antithesis of Christianity and liberalism by J. Gresham Machen. Hello again and welcome back to the Ardent Archives. My name is Pastor Drew Bieber and I'm here with my co-host, Pastor Josh McDaniel, and we are discussing uh, Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism. In our last discussion, we looked at the first two chapters in which he deals with uh, doctrine. And in the second chapter, he deals with particular doctrines, which are the doctrines of God and a man. Yeah. And in this discussion, we're going to be looking at chapters three and four. And chapter three, he deals with the doctrine of the Bible. In chapter four, he deals with the doctrine of Christ. And so I do want to read this, this first paragraph of, of the book to sort of set up our discussion. He says, modern liberalism, it has been observed so far, has lost sight of the two great presuppositions of the Christian message, the living God and the fact of sin. The liberal doctrine of God and the liberal doctrine of man are both diametrically opposite to the Christian view. But that divergence concerns not only the presuppositions of the message, but also concerns the message itself. Yeah. And so he wants to zero in on the fact that not only are these uh, foundational presuppositions about God and man, which are which we need to have a proper understanding of if we're to properly understand the gospel. Not only are these are they uh, diametrically opposed to Christianity at these foundational presuppositions, but they're also contrary to the message of Christianity itself as it is contained right. in God's word. Right. And again, and I know we've said this. At every turn, but this is not a problem that Machen de- dealt with, and he so, you know, handled and and argued and eloquently made the case against them that that those problems stopped. Now we still deal with this today. Uh, you know, very close to where we are, there is a church that makes sure it is that makes sure every year. Every year during the summer, they have a sermon series that is dedicated to movies coming out in Hollywood rather than the scripture. People will find whatever they can to promote or to emphasize or to um, put on the forefront other than God's revelation, God's scripture, which is what we need, which is what we should be thirsty and hungry for. Right. And I mean, and as we, you know, kind of alluded to in our last discussion, you know, our, our theology is basically built on two primary foundations and yeah, that's our yeah, understanding yeah. of who God is. Yeah. And that's our understanding of his word, our knowledge of the revealer and our knowledge of his revelation. Yeah. And if we get those things wrong, well then our theology, the house that we built upon these foundations is going to be shaky. Right. Maybe it'll look nice. Maybe it's got, you know, a nice layout, nice open concept and all that kind of thing. But the foundation is rotten. Yeah. And so the house is going to fall over eventually. 
And so no right. matter how nice it looks or how, or how pretty it looks, it's, it's a bad house because or it's on a faulty it, foundation. Even if it is, you know, mirroring or trying to say something about the God of the Bible. You know, like we, there are several great Christian books. I, I'll, I'll bring up the Chronicles of Narnia, for example. If we started a church that had its foundational message on Narnia, we would have a faulty foundation, even though C.S. Lewis wrote those to be allegorical and to point to Christ. If we have any, any book or anything, any, I guess, primary substance other than the revelation of God, then we have already started ourselves off on the wrong foot. Right. And it's not that those things can't be helpful. Right. Um, right, or, right, right. or that they can't be, you know, informative. They, they, right. they can't help us understand what is revealed in God's word. But as, um, you know, as the, the doctrine of sola scriptura states, the word of God is our only infallible rule of faith. Right. It's not that it's our only rule of faith. We have other rules of faith. Right. We have confessions. We have creeds. Um, you know, our, our, our pastor delivers sermons. Those are authoritative. Those are rules of faith. But they're not infallible rules of right. faith. And they're not ultimate rules of faith. Right. Our only ultimate and infallible rule of faith is the word of God. And everything needs to be subject to that rule of faith. Anything that sort of usurps that rule of faith yeah. ends up... You know, either, you know, as we kind of talked about in previous discussion, you know, when you have two competing ideologies, one ends up winning out. Right. And usually if you're willing to subject the word of God to other concepts, to other ideologies, to other rules of faith, eventually you're just going to lose the scripture is what happens. And and what happens is, you know, like you said, those things can be beneficial. They can be helpful. But far too often, the old saying is that you put the cart before the horse rather than seeing those things through the lens of scripture you see scripture through the lens of those things right right you know and that's that's where that's where we get into the wrong headedness and i think that's where machen saw a lot of people leaning and going towards and that's where we see a lot of people today doing the same thing rather than taking a scripture saturated mind and a scripture saturated living out in our daily lives into this culture and into this world and seeing things through that lens rather they're taking the culture a culture saturated life right right and they're viewing the scripture through that lens well Machen makes this point too which i think is very helpful in in the chapter he says all the ideas of christianity might be discovered in some other religion yeah. You know, pause, yeah. we might say, or, you know, in some, you know, cultural phenomenon or in Hollywood movies or whatever, we might find right. I- Christian right. ideas in those things. But he goes on to say this, yet there would be in that other religion, no Christianity. So yeah. you might find Christian ideas, but it would still be devoid of Christianity because, and here's what he says, Christianity depends not upon a complex of ideas, but upon the narration of an event. Yes. Without that event, the world in the Christian view is altogether dark and humanity is lost under the guilt of sin. And and that's the thing when people and that we, he says very eloquently there. You can find other ideals and other things. And that's the thing people people will put in these other ideas, "Hey, 
be nice to people. You know, which is absolutely you know a concept in yeah, scripture. Yeah. You know, what I mean, you know, or or they'll put in there, you know, they'll put in there, um, be there for your family. Of course, the scripture supports that. You know, I mean, th- these ideals are there. But and even some, you know, uh, some like theological ideas. You yes. Know? Uh, you know, the one that immediately comes to mind is the Matrix. Right. And okay. The, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. in the Matrix, what's what's the main point of the movie? Well, it's that Nero or Neo, not Nero. Neo is the one. Right. right? He he's the one who's going to you know save the world. Yeah. Basically. And this messianic kind of right. Idea. And so we can kind of we can kind of draw out of that and say, well, in Scripture, we we identify the one. Yeah. The one who's going to, you know put away sin and death forever. Yeah. You know, the one who's going to save his people from their sins, all, all those sorts of things. And so we can even draw out theological ideas, you know, yeah, not just, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, not just nice, you know, like you said, you know, n- n- nice ideas, like it'll be nice to people. Yeah, not just morals. You can actually right, pull right. out like deeper, I, you know, and, and richer, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Uh, richer uh, truths. But the Bible is not primarily about any moral. Or, or, or morale, it's not about any particular, you know, this is how, you know, th- these are the best stories or the ones that, that that follow this path. It's not anything like that. No, it's talking about an actual event that really happened in time and in space. And that real event is Jesus Christ came, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a sinner's death, that he was buried he rose again three days later, and he ascended into heaven, and he right. is coming back. Those are real things that happen within time and space, and that's what the Bible's about. And I mean, from the beginning to the end, you know, you look at Genesis 3, yes, and we have the Proto-Evangelium, yes. where he says, you know, you will bruise his heel and he will bruise your head. Yeah. We see from the very beginning that someone is coming to deal this death blow to the serpent, to deal yeah. this death blow to sin and death. And that's what the entirety of the scripture is narrating for us. It's yeah. this coming Messiah. And everything after Christ looks back to him, looks back to this Messiah that did come, yeah. that actually did put away sin and death forever. And that is returning again one day. To take up, you know, to to take all things, to put all things under his, uh, under his subjugation, under his rule, under his reign. We see that all throughout Scripture. Right. Scripture is about Christ. It's about a person. It's about something that happened in time and in space. It's not ethereal. It's not emotion. It's not a feelings-based thing. Although, like we said with God and with man in the previous chapter, it's not devoid of emotion. Scripture certainly, man, it conjures up incredible feelings, unbelievably Deep emotions. Right. But that's not what it's about. It's about an event. Yes. It's about something that actually happened. And this is, you know, another point that Machen really hits on. Not only not only is Christianity doctrinal, not mm-hmm. only is it is it a faith that is built upon a doctrine, but it's thoroughly historical. Mm-hmm. Is that it's not it, it's it's never something that finds its origin in the hearts of mankind. Yeah. It finds its origin in a historical event, an actual historical event that took place. Yeah. And he goes on, you know, to kind of answer this objection. He says, an objection is sometimes offered against this view of the contents of the Bible. 
Must we, it is said, depend upon what happened so long ago? Does salvation wait upon the examination of musty records? Can we not find instead a salvation that is independent of history, a salvation that depends only on what is with us here and now? And if, if we want to put that in the contemporary terms, at a Bible study, what does this passage mean to right. you? Right. Or what does it mean to me? Oh, I'm not as concerned about the event. The history of it. Yeah. yeah. What does it mean to me? And that is a, a damning idea. Yeah. And, he, I mean, he answers this objection, you know, right away. He says, he says, this objection ignores one of the primary evidences for the truth of the gospel record. The evidence is found in Christian experience. Salvation does not depend upon what happened long ago, but the event of long ago has effects that continue yes. to today. Yes. And so, you know, we are told the New Te- in the New Testament that Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for the sins of those who should believe on him. That is a record of a past event. But can we make trial of it today? And making trial of it, we find it to be true. Yeah. And it's important to note there, you know, the language that, that I've thrown out there, you know, the event happened in time and in space. And yes, his death, burial, and resurrection happened in time and space. But because of who Jesus is, and that'll be covered in the next chapter, that event wasn't bound by time and space. Right, right. And so it still has incredible relevance today. It is unlike any other historical event because the one who went through that event and who bore that suffering he was not bound by time and space and therefore the ramifications of what happened is not bound right. by time and space and and here's what he says he says we can make trial of it that is the historical event and making trial of it we discover that Jesus is truly a living savior today yes and so like you said this is an event that happened in history but it's not limited yeah. to that point in history it has long lasting effects even 2000 years removed and you know, several geographical locations and time zones and hemispheres and yeah. all that good stuff removed. It's having effects for the entire world today. Yeah. yeah, it's having effect today. And, you know, this is a subject for a different time, perhaps, but that event influenced all of time, past, present, and future. Yes, yes. And it's a remarkable thing to, to understand this event is unlike any other event that's ever happened. Right. And I know there's an idea today, again, at the time we're recording this, there is a there is a, a big movement that happens uh, where we try to go back and rewrite history, that our current standing today should inform our past, and we need to rewrite history to bring it to where we are today. Right, right. When in fact, there is no event, there is no things or new revelation today that will ever change the past. But the cross of Christ and his life and his death and his ascension, his resurrection, those things actually have changed the past. They change the present and they change the future. Well, and the best sort of, you know, demonstration or illustration of that is, is in the Bible. Yeah. We have historical records in the old Testament. Yeah that are rightly reinterpreted in the New Testament. Right. These promises, these prophecies, these events that took place had an ultimate meaning. They had an immediate meaning 
at the time that they happen, but they have an ultimate meaning that is ultimately found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Yes. And so we see that exact thing, that there is only one particular event that actually rightly can redefine or reinterpret or properly define and properly interpret prior events. Yeah. And that's the person and work of Jesus Christ. Nothing else that takes place in history has that right or has that ability. And quite frankly, um, you know, we see that today with the really feeble and failed attempts to, you know, rewrite our own history and different things like that. And it's worth noting here that this is the only book that's like that, that you literally... As you're reading it, if, if you read it from Genesis to Revelation in order, if you read this book in order, you're walking through it and you're going through it with the lens that this God is amazing. He's incredible. And all of a sudden he's here and it's Jesus Christ. And all yeah. of a sudden everything in the past makes sense in a way that it did not before. And you see that dramatically uh, told with the disciples on the road to Emmaus with uh, Jesus seeing them in Luke 24. And then all of a sudden, all of the New Testament is going back and saying, look at what Jesus did and how we have life in that now and how even the people in the Old Testament... They had life in that, even though he had not come yet. And we have life even though he's not here anymore because of that. It's the only book in all of history that focuses on one event, but literally that one event has changed all of time and all of space. It's the only book in all of history that you can, that interprets itself and you, you are awakened to new interpretation as you read from it beginning to end. And then all of a sudden it's rich all the way through with the story of this one event. Right. Right. And so he makes this point that the, the experience of true Christian salvation sort of puts to rest this idea that the Christian faith is only historical. Mm-hmm. That no, 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 no. It's not just about the historical event, but it's the fact that this historical event has effects today that yeah. are experienced by Christians yeah. today. And at that point, he kind of gets into a- answering an objection by, by highlighting Christian experience are we not back to the feelings again? Yeah. And that, you know, yeah. it, that, that we can sort of emphasize this Christian experience that, you know, it's really, again, if Christian experience is what confirms the gospel or the truth of the historical gospel, mm-hmm. then why can we not have this experience apart from the history? Right. What say you? Why can't we have the experience apart from the history? Yeah. Well, because apart from the history, apart from the event, there is no reason to have the emotions <laughs> that they say they want to conjure up. I want to rejoice in the work of my Savior. I cannot rejoice in the work of my Savior if my Savior has done nothing <laughs> in all of history. Right, right. I cannot rejoice in the cross of Christ if there was no cross that he bore. I cannot rejoice in the resurrection, in the new life that I have because of Christ, if there is no resurrection in Christ. Right. You have to, you have to look at the historical record that's contained with scripture, but not merely the historical record. You have to look at life because of the righteous living of Christ. Right. And the righteous sacrifice of Christ. 
You have to look at your life in light of those things. And without those things, there is no feeling. There is no emotion. There is no rejoicing. There or is no... Or it's just you. It's subjective. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, maybe I, I could maybe conjure up a really happy thought. Yeah. But it's not a Christian thought. Right. Unless it's rooted in how the scripture lays out who Christ is in this event that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right. And that's the point he makes clear going back to the book. He says, no matter what sort of man history may tell us of Jesus of Nazareth or of who he actually was, no matter what history may say about the real meaning of his death or about the story of his alleged resurrection, may we not continue to experience the presence of Christ in our souls? He says, the trouble is that the experience thus maintained is not Christian experience. Right. Religious experience, it may be, but Christian experience, it certainly is not. For Christian experience depends absolutely upon an event. Yeah. And he goes on later to say, Christian experience is rightly used when it confirms documentary evidence, mm-hmm. but it can never possibly provide a substitute for the documentary evidence. That's right. That's right. Um, and in that, we see that, that so many people strive for these peripheral things and they strive. And even in Christianity, or I guess I should say liberal Christianity or so-called Christianity, man, they strive for these peripheral things. But if it's not primary, primarily focused on the person and work of Christ, then those peripheral things have no root. And they're just they're just out there somewhere. They're just other little things to ascribe or to aspire to. And they're 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 attainable only through through conjuring up of emotions. If they haven't found their root in the cross and the person and the work of Christ, which is what scripture focuses on. Right. And what it is pounding from beginning to end, there is a person who is coming in Genesis. There's a person who's coming to undo the work of sin. In the Gospels, there's a person who's come to undo the work of sin. In the epistles, there's a person who has come, and we live in light of his working out, dealing right. with sin. And this scripture hammers at home. Yeah, and, and he goes on, you know, he, he kind of summarizes this this concept. He says, Christian experience is a fair flower that should be prized as a gift of God, Mm -hmm. but cut it away from its root in the blessed book, i.e. the Bible. And it soon withers away and dies. And so Christian experience can never, as he said, replace the documentary evidence contained in the scripture. And if you do try to have, or try to focus in on this experience apart from the Bible, well, it's short-lived. And right. I think, I think you know, I think the evidence points that out. I think we yeah. see that. People who have, like Bauckham said, zeal without knowledge. Yeah. That all of a sudden their zeal dies out because they don't have the knowledge yeah. to back it up. Right. And so he goes on in the chapter then to kind of move from this, you know, the, the sort of the necessity of the scriptures and the, the primacy of the scriptures to kind of talk about the nature of scripture. And... You know, he says uh, he says this about the the nature of Scripture. He says the contents of the Bible then are unique, but another fact about the Bible is also important. The Bible might contain 
an account of a true revelation from God, and yet the account be full of error. Before the full authority of the Bible can be established, therefore, it is necessary to add to the Christian doctrine of revelation, the Christian doctrine of inspiration. Yeah. So we have to understand the nature of Scripture as being, as Paul put it, God-breathed. Yes. Or, or as Peter said, that men were carried along as they spoke from right. you know, as they spoke from God. And again, this, this leads us back to... a a bit of what we said at the beginning, whether you start with the revealer or the revelation, it's not wrong because you can't have one without the other. Right. Absolutely. And so this scripture is the revelation by which the revealer has made known all of these things to us. And we have to take that seriously. We have to take that incredibly, incredibly serious. Yes. And it has to be primary. It has to be a focal point. It has to be the focal point of when we gather, we gather over the revelation. Yes. And so in discussing inspiration, he says, the doctrine of inspiration means that the Bible is not only an account of important things, but that the account itself is true. Yes. And, you know, I'll go ahead and have a a moment of, of honesty here. In my youth, which some people might say I'm still in my youth, um... I used to say dumb things like, well, of course I believe the Bible, but it was written by men. So obviously it can, it can be wrong on some things. And, you know, it was, you know, only later on, uh, having, you know, again, having zeal about God, but having no knowledge of God, you say stupid things. And, you know, and it was only later on that I, you know, became extremely convicted about that sort of mentality you know, from the words of scripture, yeah, because yeah. that's not the way the scriptures talk about itself. That's not the way scripture no, at all. treats uh, its own nature. It doesn't treat it as like, Hey, these are, you know, these are good things for you to know, but just know it, it, it might have some errors in it. Yeah. Just, you know, just work around those. Um, but you know, I had to, I had to come to terms with the fact that no, I'm wrong on this. And I had to repent of saying such stupid things. Yeah. But why is the doctrine of inspiration so necessary for our understanding of the gospel message. Can we not have a true gospel apart from an inspired text? Well, I'll go back into I'll go back into an illustration I used earlier. If if we can have if we can have a gospel message without an inspired text, or if we can have um, if we can have I guess a perfect understanding of the gospel without the scripture, then what we're saying there is that we, because who else would write it other than us, other than people, that we can conjure up the message. We can conjure up the the gospel message and we can conjure up the way by which we are saved in our own minds, in our own our own thoughts and our own works, we can conjure up a way to be saved. We can conjure up a way to have life with God. And what does that do other than take the focus off of Scripture, off of God, and it puts it back on man? So when we come to this doctrine of Scripture and it being infallible and errant and inspired, we have to understand the importance there that there is only one means by which we get a perfect salvation and where we can understand it rightly and get a perfect knowledge of it. And it's through a perfect author. 
And so this perfect author would write a perfect account of this perfect event by which we can be made righteous. If we can do that in, our, in and of our own self, if we can come to that means by something other than the scripture or through a different means other than the author, then we have some sort of perfection in us that's a part or even can be greater than the perfection we say that God has or his scripture is written in. Right, right. And so this, you know, this doctrine of inspiration is absolutely essential for understanding the truth about scripture. And, you know, he kind of he kind of summarizes it in this paragraph. He says, as a matter of fact, the doctrine of plenary inspiration does not deny the individuality of the biblical writers. It does not ignore their use of ordinary means for acquiring information. It does not involve any lack of interest in the historical situations which gave rise to the biblical books. What it does deny is the presence of error in the Bible. It -hmm. supposes that Mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit so informed the minds of the biblical writers that Mm -hmm. they were kept from falling into the errors that mar other books. The Bible might contain an account of a genuine revelation of God and yet not contain a true account. But according to the doctrine of inspiration, the account is, as a matter of fact, a true account. The Bible is an infallible rule of faith and practice. And obviously, Machen being a Presbyterian, a Westminster Presbyterian at Mm -hmm. that, understood what the confession says about the scriptures. And that it is the only infallible rule. And that's the big deal. It's the only infallible rule. Yes. And and all other things, like we said, they can be helpful. Yes. They can be helpful. They're not infallible. And they're not they are not the only rule by which we must govern much by which all other things must be governed. Yeah. And so he kind of moves on. And says, you know, the modern liberal rejects not only the doctrine of plenary inspiration. So this idea that the scriptures are the breathed out word of God, Mm -hmm. that the Holy Spirit carried men along as they spoke from God, Mm -hmm. and that by God's inspiration, we have truth communicated in the words of scripture, truth without errors. But he says that um, even such respect for the Bible as... Uh, they reject not only the doctrine of plenary inspiration, but even such respect for the Bible as would be proper over against any ordinary trustworthy book. But what is substituted for the Christian view of the Bible? What is the liberal view as to the seat of authority in religion? And so he goes on to say that um, uh, the impression is sometimes produced that the modern liberal substitutes for the authority of the Bible, the authority of Christ. And what Machen goes on to demonstrate is that in fact, liberalism does not base itself on the authority of Jesus because right. they reject a lot of what Jesus said right. and a lot of Jesus' example. But he goes on to point out that the only authority then can be individual experience. And we're right back to feelings. It that seems the to only, be the driving force behind all of liberalism. Right. That when you reject the word of God, when you reject his scriptures, when you reject the Bible as the only infallible rule of faith and practice, it always will boil down to you accepting yourself, your experience, your feelings as the infallible rule. Yeah. You have a God of your own making. You have a people of your own making and you have a gospel message of your own making. Right. Right. And if we were, you know, we can accept other rules of faith to an extent, but ultimately if we reject scripture as the ultimate and only infallible rule of faith, 
the only thing we're left with is ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that ultimately goes back to what happened in the garden. Mm-hmm. Adam and Eve were not content with God defining the terms. They wanted to be as God. Right. And so we, as wanting to be as God, we want to determine what the only infallible rule of faith and practice is. Yeah. And so we you know, say, well, I, I, I accept the Bhagavad Gita, or I accept the Quran, or I accept you know, uh, uh, the New Age thinking. But ultimately, it goes back to you yeah. and what you accept. Yeah, yeah. And when we do that, we are in grave danger of God's judgment because we are unseating God from his rightful place as the creator, as the determiner of truth. And we're saying, no, I, I get to define truth for myself. And so he, he kind of summarizes the chapter here at the end. He says, the Bible to the Christian is not a burdensome law, but the very Magna Carta of Christian yes. liberty. Yes. It is no wonder then that liberalism is totally different from Christianity, for the foundation is different. Christianity is founded upon the Bible and bases upon the Bible both its thinking and its life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful men. And so he goes on now, understanding this foundational aspect of the scriptures and that if we reject the foundation of the scriptures, we are ultimately placing as the foundation our own emotions, Mm -hmm. which... I think if anyone was honest with themselves, they'd say are unreliable. Yeah. And so then he goes on, right? He moves on from, from this foundational understanding of scripture to the liberal understanding of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And again, it kind of goes back to, it goes back again to almost what they said about doctrine. It's not as much about what you know, it's about what you feel, or it's kind of an example to follow, or it's just kind of a, it's kind of this out there kind of a thing. Again, the liberal mindset tries to take all the all of the the basis out of concrete and firm understandings from doctrine from understanding of how the scripture defines god and man and how it defines the gospel and it wants to take it out of there and it wants to put it into an emotional state yes i just really kind of want to follow jesus i don't have to know all the nitty gritty yeah yeah And so in the opening paragraph, he says this, it's not surprising then that they, liberalism, differs fundamentally with regard to the message itself. But before the message is considered, before the gospel message is considered, we must consider the person upon whom the message is based, the person of Jesus. And in their attitude toward Jesus, liberalism and Christianity are sharply opposed. Mm -hmm. And so what would you say is sort of the distinctive Christian teaching on who Christ is. Yeah. Uh, so if you could sum it up in sort of, you know, a few sentences, which is hard to do. Right. It's actually very hard to do, but there are great he, treatises, yeah. you know, written on the person and work. So uh, he would be, Warfield's, he's the he, person and work of Jesus Christ comes to mind. He is, um, he is God, the son who emptied himself. We know from Philippians took on the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay. So he lived a perfectly righteous life, died a sinner's death on a cross. Three days later, rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. He will return again to claim his rule and his reign over all of creation. And so in summarizing, finally, I would say he is the Lord of all 
And he is the Savior, the only begotten Son of God. Right, right. And I think it was um, Walter Martin who said, if you want to identify the cults, if you want to see whether uh, some, you know, group or teaching is truly biblical, you ask the question, what do they do with Jesus? Mm -hmm. And so when we think of things like Mormonism, Latter-day Saints, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, we ask the question, what do they do with Jesus? And we see that they are, you know, again, distinct. They are a completely separate religion from the Christian religion because their understanding of who Christ is, is ultimately faulty. Right. Because it reduces Jesus to a level that we feel like we can attain. Right. Well, going back to those ontological categories of being, we have God and not God. Mm -hmm. Well, according to the Bible, according to the Christian understanding of who God is, Jesus is one of the eternal members of the Trinity. He is is in the God category. And because he is God, he can condescend to his creation and can enter into his creation. Which he did. Which he did. Praise the Lord. But what some of these other cults do is they say, no, 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 no. Jesus is not God who became man. Jesus is a creation. He's part of that not God category. And he became God. Yeah. And like you said. He jumped ship. Yeah. And like you said, you know, I think if we were to reduce it down to, you know, to, you know, it's final point. It's ultimately because we think we can be yeah. God too. We're going to reduce, or not we, not the Christian, but the liberal Christian and the cults are going to reduce Jesus down to an attainable level they think they can get to. So that if we can attribute Godness to Jesus, well, if we can reduce him down to something we can attain, well, then we can claim Godness on ourselves. We can jump ship from the not God category. Yeah. What does category. what does the Book of Mormon say? I'm probably butchering this quote, but it says something along That's the okay. lines they of butcher all their quotes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they say something along the lines of as man is, God once was, and yeah. as God is, man may become. Yeah, it's something along those lines. Yeah. Right. That, that we can attain Godness. Right, right. Just like Jesus did. Yeah. And so and in in pointing that out, when we look at something like liberalism. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, you know, some other variation of it that, you know, we can identify in our day. The question we can always ask is, what do they do with Jesus? Yeah. You know, we could ask that question of, you know, uh, sort of the wokeism, mm-hmm. the woke church today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We could ask that question of, you know, republicanism. Yeah. You know, what what do they do with Jesus? And it's in asking that question that we can identify, okay, while there may be some consistency here, they're clearly not fundamentally Christian, foundationally yeah. Christian, because their understanding of who Jesus is, yeah. is faulty. Yeah. And one of the main points that he zeroes in on in this chapter is this idea that Jesus is not necessarily our savior, but he's just a good example for us. Yeah, he's just that a he's really someone, good example. someone worth emulating. Yeah. That, you know, it's it, it wasn't so much that he atoned for sins, it was that he showed us how to live our best life now. And that is such a popular, and man, it is a yeah, it is a money making statement. That that particular, you know, that might be a little anachronistic there, saying he lets us live our best life now. Yeah. But essentially, that's what it boils down to. I mean, this is just a, a a different variation of the same problem. 
that it liberalism is. had. It is. It's and and we're still in the throes of it today. It hasn't gone anywhere. And and no. I do think it's worthwhile saying that that there is no new lie. All right, the lies right. they're all old lies. They just get a brand new wrapper. In the same way that there are no new truths. There is only one truth and it's contained in the scripture and it's about a man named Jesus who is the son of God. There's one truth and all lies are just a perversion of that truth. By definition, that's what a lie is. It's a perversion of the truth. And there's not a new lie that has come about. They just get a different rebranding or a different package. And so what we have now is the same lie that Machen was fighting against almost a century ago. We have the same lie in today's time. Man, it's just got a different face. Right. And it's right. just got a different marketing strategy and a different different, you know, outer coating. I mean, it's the same garbage. Right, right. And, you know, idolatry is always what comes to mind when I think about something like this. Is we 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 think we've we've become so enlightened that we don't engage in idolatry. We don't build gods and shrines and temples to those gods where we go and offer sacrifices to these gods. No, no, we're much more sophisticated, much more enlightened than those ancient, you know, goat herding, yeah. you know, primitive peoples. But like you said, the problem's still the same. The lies are still the same. It's still the same garbage. It's just got a different face. And so today we don't build idols with our hands, but we build idols with our minds. Right. Or we make it red, white, and blue. Right. Exactly. It's the, it's the exact same problem. We still have the same sin problem. It just looks a little bit different. Mm -hmm. It's just, like I said, we're not building gods of, with our hands. We're building gods with our minds. Mm -hmm. And, and so what, you know, to me, that's so illustrative of, of what you just articulated that really there's no, there's nothing new under the sun. There's no right. new lie that's coming into being. It's the same lie that the serpent gave Eve in the garden. No, 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 no. Eat this fruit and you can be like God. Like God. Oh, no. Jesus is just something that we can attain. Yeah. No, 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 no. Jesus, it, you know, just made himself like God in the same way we too can make ourselves like God by yes. eating this fruit. It's the same lie. It's the exact same scheme. And we have fallen for it. Ever since the garden. Right. We've fallen for the same lie. It's not a new lie. It's the same lie. It's just rebranded. And if if our view of Christ, if our view of who who is God, if our view of God the Son can be so reduced that we think we can attain it, then there is no need for a Savior. Right. We can be our own salvation. Right. And he asks this question. He says, why then did the early Christians call themselves disciples of Jesus? Why did they connect themselves with his name? The answer is not difficult. They connected themselves with his name, not because he was their example in their ridding themselves of sin, but because their method of ridding themselves of sin was by means right. of him. Right. It was what Jesus did for them and not primarily the example of his own life which made them Christians. That's right. And so we have to we have to come to terms with the fact that if we're going to have a Christian understanding of Jesus, it starts with recognizing what he did. It's yes. not just about what he can get us or, 
you know, what sort of example he led for us yeah. or how he can make us better people or how good we could become. Right. Or how good we could become all of those things find their, their, their source in in ourselves. It's about us. Mm -hmm. It's about what he gives me. It's about what he, you know, how how much better he makes me feel. It's Mm -hmm. about all these other things. It's primarily about what he did specifically in the atonement for sin. Yes. And if we sort of try to take that aspect out of it, well, it's not about what he did, but it's just about the life that he lived. Right. Which is what liberalism was really trying to put forth. It was just he just gave a good example for us. True Christians are those that follow the example of Jesus. And Machen says, no, true Christians are those who had their sins atoned for by what he did on the cross. Yeah, because at the end of the day, and I've got to be careful with how I say this here, but even at the end of the day, what Jesus did if we're talking about just an example, if we're talking about that, that, if we just reduce it just to an example, what Jesus did can be perverted. Okay, and, and, and what I mean by that is this way. Okay, Jesus had meals with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus didn't judge. Man, Jesus, yeah. he was just, he was just, man, he was just there. He was just saying, we're going to get along. We're not gonna. We're not gonna be, you know, so condescending like those. You know Pharisees. who he did judge were the oppressors. Yeah. See, we can all of a sudden we can. And that's even, why I now can judge the oppressors. Yeah, we can pervert what Jesus did. I mean, and and that's that is what that is. You know, Jesus did have. Um, he did have meals with with sinners and tax collectors and and all those kinds of things. But it was not to wink his eye at them or to give them a thumbs up or give them a pass or to affirm them. And yeah, it was sin. never that, which is what can be, perver- it can right, be perverted right. into. It was never that it was to call them to repentance. It was to call them to, uh, the gospel. It was to call them to him, to a savior. So I, I, I you know, I say that, that if, if he's just an example, well, we can even pervert his example. Right. Right. And, and in that perversion, again, that's not a new thing. In that perversion, we find the same kind of lie that's always been. Well, I can do that. I yeah. Don't, I don't have to judge those people. It's it's far easier just to, listen, it is far easier to accept a person in their sin and to have a good, it's, it's far easier to give a thumbs up and a pass to all sins just so you never have conflict with anybody. Man, that's so much easier to do. Yeah, yeah than to do what actually Jesus did. Right. Which is call men everywhere to mm-hmm. repent of their and sins. To go, and to go into their world <laughs> and to do it. Right. Well, and let's, you know, let's just look at the Great Commission, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about Jesus as our, as our prime example. What did he say to do in the Great Commission? He said, go therefore and preach the gospel. Yes. Right? Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them and doing what? Teaching them all that I have commanded you. Yeah, and he says, he, you know, to go, to go into the world, and to do, not not go into the world and, and just follow my example. Right. <laughs> it's not that. Go into the world and help people live their best lives. Yeah, it's never that. Go into the world and, you know, uh, liberate the oppressed. Yeah. It, right. It's no. Go therefore and teach them what I have commanded you. Yeah. Like if, and I'll if be Jesus, with you. If Jesus is just primarily our example, well, then we should probably reject the Great Commission because the Great Commission doesn't call us to follow his example. It right. calls us to teach people 
his commandments, not teach people of his example, right. teach them his commandments. Yeah. And that's the, that's the big difference. Again, going back to that question, what do you do with Jesus? Is he just an example to follow? Is he just a person or is he just a, a level of, of, of good that we can aspire to be one day? Or is he our savior? Is he our God who has condescended into a world that is not God? And has he made a means by which not God can be with God? Right. And depending on what you do with Jesus, it depends on that's, that's where you draw the line is, is this Christianity? Yeah. He says this later in the chapter. He says, there is a profound difference then in the attitude assumed by modern liberalism and by Christianity towards Jesus the Lord. Liberalism regards him as an example and guide. Christianity as a savior. Liberalism makes him an example for faith. Christianity, the object of faith. And this difference in the attitude towards Jesus depends upon a profound difference as to the question of who Jesus was. And again, this, like you said, if we don't understand Jesus as God, if we think him to be a creature, well, then it makes sense that he's just a good example. Mm-hmm. But if he's God, well, then he can't just be a good example. He's got to be something more than just a good example. And it's really, it, you know, it, that's really where the crux of the difference comes, is that there's a rejection of Jesus as God. And either an explicit a rejection of him as God or a rejection of his commandments as carrying the weight and the authority of God. And so because we reject that aspect of his nature, well, then we come up with all these other sorts of weird things mm-hmm. like, well, he's just a good example. And, you know, that's why I don't judge because Jesus didn't judge. And yeah. it's like, well, I mean, scripture calls God the supreme judge. So yeah. I think he did judge. He did judge. And he will do it again. Right. And yeah. he tells us he's coming back to judge again. So, And so one of the great quotes that I remember, uh, I, my favorite musician, uh, Christian musician was Rich Mullins. Mm. And he has some weird views. You know, I, I, I don't hold to the every view that he had was fantastic or great. But one thing he would always say when people would ask him, you know, who's who is your hero? And he would his answer. He would quickly reply was a guy named Saint Francis of Assisi, and people would always get shocked by that, and they'd kind of, you know, recoil a little bit, and they'd say, "Wait, wait, Jesus isn't your hero?" And he would look at them, and he'd say, "Well, he'd say, he'd say, Jesus is my savior. He is God." He's something I can never be or aspire to become. Right. He said, Jesus is altogether different. Francis of Assisi is a guy who lived a life that I really want to emulate in how he lived out his life for Christ. But again, Francis of Assisi lived his life for Christ. Rich Mullins desired to live his life for Christ. He never desired to attain an equal standing with Christ. Right. And, and that, that doesn't mean though that Jesus is not a good example. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? That yeah. means that the question what would Jesus do is still a valid question. It is a valid question. But we have to recognize that it's really not about what Jesus would do, it's about what he did. Right. What he did on the cross. And we can only 
begin to ask ourselves, okay, how would, how would Christ act in this situation? What, 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 how can I be more Christ-like as I deal mm-hmm. with certain things in my life? We can only ask that question from the place of recognizing, as Rich Mullins did, that Jesus is my Savior. Right. That he saved me from my sins. And because he saved me from my sins, now I can go and produce good fruit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, only, it's, it's not the other way around. Well, I'm just going to try to live a good life, and I'm just going to try to be better and... You know, that's what it means to be a Christian and, and just to follow Jesus. And sure, there are some great men and women in the faith that we look at, we look at their life and we think, you know what? You know what? Those people lived a life that I see a lot of. You know, there, there's a lot of similar, you know, maybe in, in what they were dealing with at the time. I want to kind of see how they dealt with those things. I know that we as a staff, man, when when COVID's first started coming, we went to look at how did other preachers minister to people during times of difficulty, the black plagues and stuff like that. We went to look at times like that. Yeah. Those things are beneficial and they are good. And when we go in and we look at how Jesus dealt with the sick, yes, that is a good thing to do. But we also have to quickly come to a realization, yeah, but we can't walk in to that situation and say, be healed and immediately see those things. We're not Jesus. We're not him. He's different. He's wholly different than who we are and who we can be. We cannot attain that. There are great examples of men and women who have lived for Christ, but he was the object of their faith. He was not just an example they were trying to follow. Right. And one of the difficulties that liberalism has is, you know, first of all, it's commitment to the Enlightenment, and particularly to naturalism, mm, mm. Uh, you know, it's it's it, it has to find a rational, natural explanation for things, and yeah. and and rejects supernatural. And he has a, a very informative discussion on the difference between, you know, God's providence and, and miracles that God performs. Yeah. You know, discussing you know the sort of ordinary means that God yeah. you know uh, uses to uh, providentially govern the world, and then using some immediate you know, means by which he enters in the world and, and right. performs miracles and different things like that. And so that was super helpful. But there is this this difficulty. And I think this is one of the, uh, this is just one of the results of being a creature in the not God category. We don't, yeah. we don't understand. We're, we're so limited in our faculties to be able to comprehend the relationship between God and his creation, mm-hmm. between the supernatural and the natural mm-hmm. and specifically as he puts it here is the supernatural and the historical liberalism has trouble with understanding Christ as a supernatural person. They have difficulty understanding him as God, as well as understanding him as a historical figure yeah. who actually yeah. walked on the earth. And, you know, we sing a song frequently on Sunday mornings called, you know, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Yes. And it truly is a mystery. How can the eternal step into time and space? Yeah. How can that which is outside of time step into time? It doesn't make any sense. And, you know, obviously we as time bound creatures have no way of stepping outside of time. Right. And sometimes we project that onto God and think, well, because I can't step out of time, there's no way for God to step into time. And that's one of the issues that. Uh, Islam has with Allah is that th- that's one of the reasons they reject Christianity is because, you know, Allah has, it, it, he's unable to step into time and space, yeah. like, you know, almost, almost an attitude of, well, he's, he's kind of too good for that. He's too holy for that kind of thing. Yeah. He would not sully himself. Exactly. And, and the Christian faith is built upon this doctrine that the eternal God 
took on human flesh. Yeah. And we have no way of, of reconciling those things. So wait a second. You're saying an actual person, right, who, you know, had to take baths and probably caught colds. Got and, hungry, had to take got, naps. Got, hung, got hungry, had to take naps. Uh, that guy was actually God. Like we don't, we don't understand how yeah. to like relate those two things together or to hold those two things together in a way that is, you know, thoroughly understandable. Yeah. But that's the way scripture presents Jesus. It presents him as a historical figure who was actually God. Yes. And it doesn't give us a complete and thorough explanation of this is exactly how it happened or how it was. It kind of just tells us that it was. Yeah. And if we're going to hold to the scriptures, right, if we're going to hold to the revealed word of the revealer, well, then we have to accept this understanding that Jesus was a man, an actual historical man who was also God. And exactly the way that works, it's a mystery. Yeah, he was an infinite God and finite flesh you know it, we know it was finite because it was killed you yeah. know but ultimately it was restored it was it was it was resurrected it was made how do we wrap our minds around that and even the language gets technical and it's hard yes you know because in actuality maybe the flesh wasn't finite because it was resurrected maybe he's living forever and so even in that the language gets hard it gets tough but we recognize that what the scripture teaches is so profound and it's true. We know it's true because we know its author is perfect and he is true. We know that it is infallible, is the only word of God by which we can rule all, by which all other things must be governed and ruled. And it primarily talks about a savior named Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, the only begotten son of God became flesh and he lived a righteous life we couldn't live died a sinner's death that we deserved and he rose again so that we can have life with God and not God can be with God we hope that you enjoyed this discussion of Christianity and liberalism and we hope that it has been edifying to you and your walk with Christ Now, this conversation is by no means exhaustive, so we pray that our discussion leads to meaningful conversations with friends and family as you learn what it means to contend for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact us at podcasts at northclay.org. For more information from North Clay Baptist Church or from the Ardent Archives, visit our website at www.northclay.org. We look forward to learning with you again soon, here on the Ardent Archives. Thank you.